0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. And I am glad that you're here. Welcome to Bethel downtown. We're so glad that you're here, as Mike said. We don't think you're here by accident, and so we want to continue, as Mike said, to worship together, to respond to who God is and what He has done. So I want to start this morning, I want to talk about comparison. Sort of a central theme and a thread that I want to weave through, if I can, a very difficult passage for this morning. I want to talk about comparison. There's, a, there's an old, old proverb that's actually not biblical, but I still think it's true, and the proverb goes like this. Comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is the thief of joy. Now, my friend Mike Hall likes to nuance that and aim it at me, and he says, Comparison is the thief of joy unless you're better. Because, you know, I mean, come on, all of us kind of like to gauge how we're doing vis-a-vis compared to those around us. And even this morning in the first service, I was going through this, and I mean, I said amen after the benediction, and one of our guys came up, one of the guys that I ride bikes with from time to time, and he goes, so that was all about you, wasn't it? I mean, because you, I mean, you, you're the comparer. That's like your superhero name. You're the comparer. It's like, nah, no, no, I'm, at, no, what? He goes, yeah, you know, the app that we use. He said, I, every time we ride, as soon as we finish riding, you pull that up to see how you did compared to everybody else. It's like, you are out of this church kicked him out. He's gone. You'll never see him again. All right. He's right. He totally got me. We all have the tendency to want to compare ourselves and no matter what we do, as long as there's someone that's a little bit below me or beneath me, I feel okay. There might be a hundred thousand people up ahead of me as there is on my biking app, but as long as there's someone below me, I feel pretty good about myself because we are all prone to comparison. My actions actually all come out of an attitude and what i know about myself and what this text is really going to amplify is that that attitude sits on this volcanic caldera of sin it's a mess in there or as david will say in psalm 32 5 something has gone horribly wrong inside of me now some of you may be sitting there going well now all right hold on a second that's just pastor speak because i know eric He's not that bad of a guy, and yet there's also some of you in here going, Oh, no, no, I know him well. He's much, much worse than he's letting on. And you're both right. That's right. But there is this reality of sin. And so this morning, we get the, how shall I say, challenging, unpleasant opportunity to look at the mirror of Scripture and see that despite all of our upbringing all of our tradition all of our society all of our cultural assumptions here's the reality there is simply no moral higher ground now why do i say that Because this text is going to be a scalpel to every one of our souls. This is the Apostle Paul very technically dealing with every one of our baseline default assumptions that we have at least some moral higher ground on somebody else. Because we love to compare. I will tell you candidly that when we looked at starting the Romans series last spring and I looked at the outline of when we are going to come to Romans 2, uh, I had trepidation. This is one of the more technical passages in the whole of your Bible. It's, it's a little bit tricky. But I invite you to walk through it with me. we will be rel- relatively brief and efficient, but it is, a, uh, it is a challenging passage to be sure. And what it's going to tell us is that there is no such thing as moral higher ground. And what we're going to see as a result of this passage is our big idea for the morning. And it goes like this. Sin is worse than we think. Like, I don't know how bad you think it is. You may think, oh, no, I think sin is bad. Good, it's worse than that. No, no, I think sin is really, really bad. Good, it's worse than that. Okay, well, I think it's the very worst thing ever. Good, it's worse than that. Sin is worse than we think. I know it's not exactly the feel-good sermon of the year. I get that. And yet, here we are in September. It's Romans chapter 2. Sin is worse than we think. So, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We're going to walk through these first 16 verses. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll go all the way through verse 16. I want to remind you that as we read Romans, that there is an overarching theme of the book of Romans. That Romans, in a sense, is the microcosm, it's the summary and the summation of the entire Bible. The summary and the theme of the book of Romans goes like this, the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ, that's the thrust and the theme of Romans. Now, we're going to look at how this piece in Romans chapter 2 supports that overarching theme. So, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. You might write the word compares there, by the way. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now that's interesting. We have to spend some time on that passage here in just a moment. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. You ought to be having some little twinges of, huh, going off in your soul right now. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Generally speaking, when Romans 2, 1 to 16 is read, there is a resounding oi ve" that is heard amongst the people. Oh my goodness, there's law, there's more law, there's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's righteousness, there's judgment, there's justification. Hey ya yay enough already. This is one of the more technical passages in All of Paul's writings. This passage, more than any other in the entire New Testament, deals with judgment. Hear that again. Romans 2 is the thickest passage in the whole of the New Testament dealing with judgment. Yay! Judgment! It's not a feel-good text. This is not normally where we go devotionally to just spend some time resting in the Word. It's a very meaty passage, but it's also crucially important. It is God's word. And look, I get it. We say all the time that Romans is like the microcosm of the Bible. And sure enough, I know how we do, because I'm guilty of this. January 1st rolls around and you say, I'm going to do it this year. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. I'm going to do it. I'm going to sit down. I got my coffee. I got my seven highlighters I got Instagram ready. I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. I'm going to do it. Man, you take off, it's New Year's Day, you're reading about the creation, and then you're just praising God, and you're clicking pictures of it, and you're doing, and I, I get it, you're reading your Bible, and it's awesome. And then, you know, I don't know, you get through Exodus, and it's kind of plotting, and oh gosh, boy, more plagues, and more death, and ooh, that seems kind of harsh, and ooh, gosh, drowning Egyptians, that's weird. And then by about Valentine's Day, you get to Leviticus. And you're thinking, woo, Valentine's Day, box of chocolates. No, Leviticus, there's a hair that turned white in an open sore. I'm done reading the Bible for the year. And you put it aside, and you never even get to Deuteronomy. I get it. Well, Romans 2 is the Leviticus of the book of Romans. You get to Romans 2, and you're like, oh boy, all this mention of the law, all this, that, what's going on here? Why do I have to know this? Well, again, this is Paul making a very big deal about the glory and the brilliance of the gospel that he's already laid out for us in chapter 1, verse 17. He's got to make a really big deal of the brilliance and the glory of the gospel. But the way he has to do that is by continuing on the theme of the darkness because of verse 18 in chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed. And he's had to walk through what the depths of depravity look like. And so Paul's going to say, I've already addressed the need for the gospel among the irreligious, that is the pagan, wicked, worldly idolater. But the gospel is for other people too. The gospel's not just for the pagan, wicked, idolatrous, irreligious. The gospel is for somebody else as well. So, Paul gets pretty technical here, but he's not showing off. He's doing something very, very important. So, I'm going to begin reading again in verse 1. Let's see what Paul does here. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore. Now, that's crucially important that we understand. The therefore is there for something. The chapter and the verse markers were added 1,500 later. Paul was not writing chapter and verse markers. What Paul has written in chapter 1 continues seamlessly into chapter 2. In other words, what he writes in chapter 2, you cannot understand unless you realize that it's connected to chapter 1. So let me catch this up really quickly. Here's where we are in the book of Romans. He's consistently laid out the gospel. What we say around here is the gospel is the good news of what God has done In Christ, to redeem us to himself and to one another. It is not a set of doctrines that you believe so that you go to heaven one day when you die. The gospel is a person. It is Jesus himself. It is a person that has accomplished a thing and it is good news that God has done a thing. It's happened. It's a great story. It's an awesome announcement. That's the gospel. Again, the theme of Romans, the righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Or, as we said last week, the set rightness that God demands of us, He freely gives to us. And that's crucial because at the same time, as we speak, the wrath of God is being revealed. God is already starting in the setting right of all that is not right. All the irreligious pagan wickedness that is called out in the second half of chapter 1. And so now Paul is going to shift audiences. Paul's now going to write primarily to the religious readership of the churches in Rome. And he's setting them up to hear how desperately everybody needs the gospel. Paul writes this letter sitting in Corinth in A.D. 57 to these churches in Rome that he's never visited, doesn't know anybody there. And he's been walking through at the end of chapter one all this laundry list of the different varieties of sin, depravity, darkness of soul. And the moral religious people would have been sitting there in the churches in Rome, hearing this letter read aloud, going, amen, that's right, you get him, Paul. It's like Hannity always says, Just just saying, there's all of these people who are just like, and Paul is talking about the egregious sins of the society, and these moral, religious people are saying, amen, Paul, that's right, go get them, sick them, sick them, sick them. And then Paul says, therefore, you. It's an astonishing shift. Let me read it again. Therefore, you have no excuse. Now that's astonishing. We have to understand what Paul is doing. It's it's geeky and it's Greeky, so please just stick with me for a moment. All through the second half of chapter one, Paul is speaking third person plural. He's saying them out there. Them, they. They're doing all that bad, wicked, evil stuff. They're doing that. And the moral people inside the church were going, yes, you go get them, Paul. That's right, them. They're bad. They're bad. And then Paul goes, gotcha. He switches From third person plural to second person singular. One person. He makes a switch here. He wants to give them the gospel since he's not yet been there. He wants to impart some truth to them that they might not be fully operating with. And so to give them the gospel, he's got to give them some bad news. Because... Good news isn't that good unless there's also a context of bad news. So Paul's setting them up. Yes, they out there, they're bad. They're doing bad, bad things. And you have no excuse because you do the exact same thing. And there's this record scratch moment at First Church of Rome 2,000 years ago. Let me keep reading here so you see what I'm talking about. Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. You have no excuse. Paul's now going to shift his focus from the irreligious to the religious. Paul's going to say that the gospel is for everyone, not just the wicked people out there, but the religious person in here. I want you to hear that again. The gospel is for everyone. I'm reminded of Paul's encounter in the city of Philippi on his second missionary journey in Acts 16. He encounters Lydia, who is a religious Gentile. She's a God-fearer, but she's following after God religiously so that he will give her stuff, so that he will bless her. But Paul gives her the gospel and she's transformed. She used to think God was useful, now she thinks God is beautiful. She loves him as a person, not as a code of conduct or a book of rules. And so Paul's telling his church in Rome, I think related to that experience in Philippi, the first church in Western civilization, hey, the gospel's for them out there. And if you think you're better than them out there, guess what? The gospel's also for you because there is no higher ground. You have no excuse, O man. He says again in verse 1, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, again, This passage has been so misused, misinterpreted, and therefore misapplied that it has literally spawned off different churches and different denominations. So we have to have a little help to understand literarily the context of what Paul is doing, how, and why. Paul, in chapter 2, steps into what we call diatribe. I know, this is going to be the stuff that you talk about all lunch at Luby's, I get it. just... Bear with me for a moment. This is called diatribe. It's a formal literary tactic that Paul uses. Why? Because Paul has been accused of being afraid of going to Rome and not wanting to face the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed. I want to go there. I've been prevented from going there by God himself. But I'm going to speak to you in your native tongue, as it were. And so Paul goes into diatribe, which essentially says, I'm going to create an imaginary student, Or an objector. Some people call that a straw man approach. Paul says, I'm going to create an imaginary student or an imaginary objector. And that imaginary objector is the moral, decent, religious person inside the church. Almost certainly a Jew. We know at the end of chapter 2, he's explicitly saying, Hey, this is about you Jews who are in the church at Rome. Believers, converts, but they're moral because they keep the law of Moses. Therefore, they assume they have moral high ground. So Paul, in chapter 2, shifts from the irreligious, wicked outside. Now he's going to address the moral, religious person inside, probably a believing Jew. So just for the sake of simplicity, we're going to call this person Murray. Because, you know, Murray. And if you hear your name is Murray, I'm so sorry. Murray, instead of saying the invented objector or student, we're just going to say Murray. Murray. Murray is the moral, religious, high-ground guy inside this church. And Paul says, listen, Murray, you've been saying, yeah, that's right. Those people out there, they're bad. Sick them, get them, get them, get them. And he says, you, therefore, have no excuse. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. I don't know why, with gritted teeth, the ESV translates it Thus. The translation should be, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. I don't know why the ESV translates it that way. We know that the judgment of God is kata alatheon, according to truth, which was a Jewish saying. It was a, a, a way of doing rhetoric. When you say this is according to truth, a Jewish person has to agree. Ah, God judges according to truth. Paul has garnered automatically their agreement. He's got them. They're with him. We know that God judges according to truth. Every Jewish hearer is going to say, Yep, he sure does. I agree. And then Paul's got them. According to those who practice such things, verse 3, So then, since you are now in agreement with me, do you suppose, O Murray, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, Murray... That you, Murray, will escape the judgment of God? You know that God judges according to truth, don't you, Murray? Well, of course he does. Hmm. Then, Murray, do you think you who do the same things will escape truth? What? But I'm Murray. I'm, I'm right because I'm me. I'm, I'm, I'm Murray. Now, that might sound ludicrous to you until you get really still and say, ooh, that's actually a lot of my default behavior. I, I'm right because I'm me and I do this, and it's okay because I'm me. No one else can do this, but I can't because I'm me. Paul says, really, you, you just agreed that God judges according to truth, to an objective standard rooted in Him, right? Well, of course He does. Do you think, verse 3, Murray, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Now, Murray's going, "Well, wait, wait, wait. wait, 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 wait. I don't actually do those things. I don't do all the stuff that you described in chapter 1. Well, remember, Paul has just finished up the end of chapter 1, where we have all these different lists of things like malice and gossip and hatred, things that are largely internal. And Paul says, you're judging the wicked out there for doing some things, but it's just what you're doing. It's just that nobody sees it, because you are more practiced and rehearsed at hiding it. Hmm. But it's happening inside your heart. This is Paul very Faintly, delicately quoting the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches. You who commit murder, that's obviously bad. But when you call your brother a fool, you've committed murder in your heart. When you look upon a woman inappropriately, that's adultery. You've done it in your heart. Paul's saying, you're condemning them for doing stuff bad that's out there, but you're doing the very same things. And this is serious. Sin is worse than you think it is. Way worse. Verse 4. Oh, he says, sorry, verse 3 still you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. In other words, hey, Murray, judgment is coming. I know you want God to sick the people out there who are bad, but understand, sin is worse than you think, and you're soaked with it as well. Judgment is coming. Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? See, I love this about the Apostle Paul. He's, He's engaging in what's called diatribe, this Roman literary method but he's also quoting psalm 62 and the wisdom of solomon a non-biblical wisdom literature that the jews would have all known he's doing both as he speaks to murray here at first rome do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that god's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance murray come on man do you not understand what's going on you think you're able to live a good and decent moral life and it's pretty much been fine you've been left alone no big whoop Murray, do you think that's because you're actually awesome? Murray says, "Well, yeah, I'm Murray." I says, "No, no, you don't understand. God is being kind and He is demonstrating forbearance. It's not that He's distracted or disinterested or weak. It's that He's showing you kindness. And the very fact that you haven't been incinerated is to be a kindness that you receive and come back to repentance." Murray, come on, man. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Paul's making this brilliant, open-and-shut, ironclad, airtight case that cannot be refuted. Then he says in verse 5, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, ooh, the gospel's for the irreligious, the gospel's also for the religious, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, judgment is coming. And you judging them out there, establishing for yourself a moral high ground, You are storing up objects of wrath. It's not neutral. It's not like, well, nobody knows how I feel about all of them out there, that I'm actually superior and better. As long as I'm better than someone, I'm doing okay. That's actually storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Now, what's really, really interesting about this whole 16-verse passage is the word faith is never used once because Paul's building a case. Oh, you want to do this religiously? You want to do this according to your doing and your mechanics and your religious narrative? Well, now I'm really going to set the bear trap for you. This passage is really broken up into three paragraphs. We've done verses 1 to 5. Now Paul's going to step into a hypothetical scenario in verses 6 through 11. I want to say this as clearly and emphatically as I can. Verses 6 to 11 is a hypothetical scenario This is not the Apostle Paul telling people how to get saved. There are entire churches and denominations that take this paragraph and build their entire ecclesiology around it that says this is how a person gets saved. That is not what Paul is doing. It can't be. It would be diametrically opposed to everything else that's written in his 13 books and, by the way, the entire Bible. So I want to be as clear as I can about that because there's so much misunderstanding. I can't tell you how many books... I came across defending the wrong position for this passage. Very, very grievous to me to hear this. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. Hey, Murray, judgment's coming. You sure you want to put all your stuff up on the scales, all of it? Because he will reward according to works. That's what judgment does. Verse 7, Now, I know this is not how we typically read in the West. We read linearly and we read in numeric order. But verses 7 and 10 go together. Verses 8 and 9 go together. I know that's weird. It's a Greek form called chiasm. Just trust me, you can forget that now. Verses 7 and 10 go together as a set. Verses 8 and 9 go together as a set. So verse 7 says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. You just go after it, you got it. Now something inside you should say, wait a minute, we don't believe that. Okay, well hold on. Verse 8 and 9, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That does not sound like fun, incidentally. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. (laughs) So in chapter 1, verse 16, it said salvation is for the Jew first and then the Greek, to which the Jews went, hey! But now in chapter mm 2, verse 9, it says Judgment is first for the Jew and then the Greek. See, that is Paul being super clever. There was a Jewish proverb in that day that said, salvation is to the Jew first and judgment is to the Jew last. Because we're Jews, we're Murray. We're, it's us. We're, we get saved first, we get judged last. Paul says, Mm-mm. we're all on even ground. We all have equal footing because sin is worse than we think and there is no such thing as moral high ground before a righteous God verse 10 now but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good the Jew first and also the Greek sure makes it sound like Paul saying hey if you just do good you're in but he's not doing that this is not Paul's recipe of how one gets saved this is Paul saying this is how God will judge hypothetically it is possible hypothetically it is possible for you to self-justify but you have to do perfectly at all times ever in thought word and deed all the time all the time ever always can i make that strongly enough and paul says but you can't it is a practical impossibility because of the presence of sin you can't do it i can't do it it can't be done it is a practical impossibility. That means it's not possible. This is not Paul saying, here's how you get saved. Do good, try harder, be better. He's saying this is the standard by which God will judge. This is it. If you want to apply how good you are, that you have moral high ground, well, let's just see because all of your good and all of your bad and thought word indeed gets heaped on the scales. Murray, come on, are you sure that's what you want? Paul says the gospel is for you too. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. Literally, God does not see faces. That's kind of eerie. God doesn't see faces. It's not that he can't see, he's groping around. No, no, no. He doesn't look at anything that we look at. He doesn't care about our appearance, our background, our socioeconomic status. He doesn't care about our education. He doesn't care about our particular voting class, our home address. He doesn't care about any of that. Nobody has moral high ground, and sin is worse than we think. Well, Paul's going to continue in verse 12, and he's going to say all these things about the law. What he's really doing is just, again, dividing the world up between Jews and Gentiles. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Paul tries to bring these things back together. All people are judged according to the truth, at which point Murray pipes up and goes, hey, that's kind of not fair we have the law we're going to be judged more harshly and paul says "Mm, actually murray no they have the law as well it's written on their hearts see there is common grace there is general revelation he's already explained that in chapter one god has revealed that which is right and wrong to all creation that is a common grace I don't care who you are. If you are a human being, God has fashioned you to instinctively, intrinsically know the difference between right and wrong. Contra a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers who said man did not know right and wrong. and has to be taught. The Bible says wrong. The Bible says you are instinctively built with that knowledge. If you go to Huntsville, Texas, and you walk the Green Mile on death row, and you walk up to the most hardened, most ghastly, horrific terrible criminal and you take his lunch tray and punch him in the throat he's going to say Oh, you should not have done that that was not very nice because he even knows what's right and wrong even he knows that that was not very nice of you all of us come hardwired with that paul says they have no excuse but you jewish people you are the chosen people the recipients of the oracles of god the keepers of the scripture and the messiah came to you he is jewish You have special revelation with pen and ink on paper. You will be judged according to that, but all will be judged. Judgment is coming. It's a hard word. Verse 13 For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Well, that sounds like if I just try to do some good, God's going to declare me righteous. That's not what Paul means. He means you have to do all of it completely and perfectly at all times without fail in thought, word, and deed. Because there was a Jewish proverb that said, as long as one has intent, he will be justified. That's what the rabbis were writing after the closure of Scripture. And Paul says, actually, no. Intent is not at issue. Because how much intent do you have to have? Oh, come on, just enough. Because I'm me. I have moral high ground. I'm Murray. Paul says, no, no such thing. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Their conscience testifies against them, is what he says here. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them or attempt to excuse them. My conscience convicts me. I walk around the house groaning about the stupid things I've done and said. All the time, can't help it. I lay in bed groaning about the stupid things I've done and said. Can't help it. Happens all the time. But sometimes my conscience also tries to excuse the stupid things that I've done and said. oh, well, you know, I was tired. It's hot outside. El Nino, the dog ate my homework, whatever. Because that's the kind of dirtbag soul that I am. That's what the human conscience does, Paul says. Verse 16, on that day... When, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Well, that's a strange word to leave. Paul says, hey, by the way, I want you to understand that part of the gospel is that Jesus came. And he himself, who knew no sin, became sin, so that these people might be the righteousness of God. That's a part of the gospel, but also a part of the gospel is that he will come again, and he will set right everything that is as yet left unright. He will come again. And the one who was judged for the sin of the world will now judge the sin of the world. That's a part of the gospel. Now, candidly, that's not frequently how we like to give the gospel. We don't say, hey, hey, kids, gather around, gather around. Listen, Jesus is coming and he's gonna exterminate sin in the world. You ready to pray and receive him? Go, ah. But that is a part of the gospel. It is one of the ingredients in the casserole of the gospel. For us to understand the brilliance and the beauty of Romans 1.17, we have to understand the darkness that kicks off in 1.18. The wrath of God is coming against the irreligious. The wrath of God is coming against the religious. And so the gospel is for everybody. That's really good news. Sin is worse than we think. Well, Let me just give a few quick concluding principles here. Just three quick summary principles that I hope will try to encapsulate all this for us. The first one goes like this. The reign of sin is universal. The reign of sin is universal. Most of us, as I look out across this room, it was the same way in the first service, but they're a little bit more holy because they got up earlier than you. Most of us have grown up in a church context thinking, or maybe even being taught, that the Bible talks about good people and bad people. I just think about my own upbringing. that that I thought in the world there were some good people, there were some bad people. And I opened up the Bible and I thought, well, yeah, there's stories about good people, there's stories about bad people. But Romans chapter 2 changes that strikingly. Romans is a smoking gun that lets us know, in the mind of God and therefore in reality, there are bad people and Jesus. And that's all. And if you think to yourself for a nanosecond, well, yeah, I know, I get that. There's bad people in Jesus, but there's also me. I mean, I'm a little bit closer to over here, but I'm at least better than those people. I mean, they went to college in Louisiana. (laughs) Right? I mean, functionally, we behave that way. There's bad people, and then there's me, and then there's Jesus. And really, between me and the presence of God, it's just like a half flight of stairs. I just need a little bit of a boost and a nudge. Nah, The Bible says the gospel is for the irreligious and the religious. There is no moral high ground. Sin is worse than we think. This passage is a bucket of cold water that douses us with that shocking truth. Whether you're irreligious, religious, or completely indifferent, we are all essentially bad. Now, it's really fascinating. We're going to get one definition of sin from Paul in the book of Romans in chapter 14. We have to wait all the way to chapter 14. That's going to be like mm, the year 2028, I think, when we get there. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you now. We only get two definitions of sin in the entire New Testament. One's in Romans, one's in James. That's interesting. In Romans 14, 23b, it says, Sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith. Period. Period we have a tendency to think of sin as all this bad stuff that I do or the good stuff that I don't do. Sin is way worse than we think. It is anything that proceeds apart from faith. I call that Monday through Sunday. And it's a full day for me. My thought life, my speaking life, my doing life, my relational life, Anything that, prov- that proceeds apart from faith, because the depths of my depravity knows that there is sin, but there is also this sense of oh, I mean, I, I'm not that bad. At least I'm better than her. And I store up wrath for myself when I drift into that mindset and that mentality, and I am absolutely no good at loving and serving her. See, this matters. And this is the condition of all seven and a half billion people on the planet. And yet, there is good, and yet God gets glorious and gracious things accomplished despite the universal reign of sin. It reigns everybody by default, but not ultimately. We'll come back to that in a moment. Second point goes like this, and this passage confirms it. I said it a few weeks ago, I want to say it again. All human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is grace. All human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is grace. Paul goes to great lengths to make sure his readers and therefore us understand that sin is a really big deal. It is worse than we think. You may think, well, I think sin's really bad. No, it's worse than that. No, I think sin's really bad. No, it's worse than that. I think it's the worst. Good, it's worse than that. It's worse than we think. And because of sin, regardless of the various forms that it takes, God has to deal with sin as he goes about his program of righteousness, of setting the world right. And I'm so glad that he already is. The question that we want to ask is, well, why doesn't God just save everyone? Wouldn't that be fair? And the answer is absolutely no. What this passage helps us to to understand is that God is not fair. If God were fair, no one would be saved in the history of humankind. All human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is grace. The better question we should be asking is, why would God love anybody enough to save even one? And how in the world am I numbered among them? My God, my God, why has he not forsaken me? I've taken a look inside. There's no champion inside of me. It's the epitome of wickedness. The epitome of self-righteousness. And yet, God loves me. In the past tense, in the present tense, and eternally in the future tense. That's very good news. Which brings to the third point. The gospel is such good news because sin is such bad news. I want to keep making a big deal about this as we continue to walk through these first three chapters in the doctrine of condemnation. I promise chapter 4 is coming, but we're not there yet. In other words, the solution to the wrath of verse 18 is the gospel in verse 17. When we begin to feel sort of the heaviness and the burden and the ugh, that all this wrath and judgment is coming and ugh, remember the righteousness of God is being revealed. That's verse 17. God will set everything right and that includes the mess inside of me. And if you're sitting there and you happen to be thinking that you're actually pretty decent, I mean you're not Captain Awesome, but you're like, Corporal pretty cool? A little better? Well, let me just tell you, this passage, this message is also for you. Anytime any one of us look around and we compare our decency and morality to somebody else's, we are guilty of the same thing as Murray in chapter 2. Yes, my sin is a horrible reality. I had an old seminary professor who I think is still alive, and he's about 197 years old right now. And he used to say, the doctrine of depravity is a glorious thing. And I remember sitting there thinking, no, it isn't. It's horrible. That's terrible. You're wrong. That's not. And as I have aged and realized, oh, the doctrine of depravity is an absolutely glorious thing because it shows me the depths from which God rescued me. The gospel happened, it's happening, and it will continue to reverberate. See, Paul's going to make us wait a little bit longer in Romans before he resolves all of this tension that he's created from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3. He's going to make us wait, but I I, I can't leave it unresolved. The refrain that Paul says is, judgment is coming, the wrath is coming, judgment is coming, the wrath is coming, but you're sitting here and you've got a Monday to walk into, so I'm going to drop a spoiler alert here. We'll start hearing the first pings of the good news in chapter 3, verse 24, verse 24. Fully flowering in chapter 4, but I'll tell you this. Yes, judgment is coming, but if you're a Christian, judgment has already come at the cross of Christ. It's like you were there. Your sin, your warrant for arrest and execution was nailed to the cross of Christ with him. And so when I look at the cross and I begin to elevate myself as having some sort of moral high ground, at least I'm better than them. Oh, then I look at the cross and say, that should have been me. But at least I would not have been a bloody mess as that guy. No, 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 no. See, the, the cross removes all arrogance. It removes all sense of moral high ground. And candidly, if I can get just a little bit preachy, This is where evangelical Christianity falls off the rails as when we forget to look at the cross of Christ and how it removes all moral high ground and instead begin to bulwark ourselves to think we are somehow better, that we deserve saving more than anybody else. And then we're totally gobsmacked that the world doesn't want to come to hear the gospel. No, no, no. We have the opportunity and the privilege, like Paul said, to view the world around us as we are their debtors, to give them grace to give them the gospel, because judgment is coming. And then Paul says, yes, judgment is coming, and he's not mincing words. What we do here and now matters. There will be a judgment, but for the Christian, not unto eternal salvation. There will be an evaluation, a measuring. What we do matters, because it demonstrates that which has been done in us. Martin Luther said it this way, salvation is by faith alone, but the faith that saves will never be alone. It's always going to be some sort of produce from a life that is redeemed. And he writes it this way. It's like an apple tree. You know that an apple tree is healthy when it produces, oh, um, what's that fruit? Apples! But the apples do not make it an apple tree. The apples do not provide for the life of the apple tree. But an apple tree that it produces, no, apples is not a healthy apple tree. So yes, what we do matters, and yes, there will be evaluation, and yes, there will be measurement, and yes, there will be reward given for what we do here as a demonstration, as a presentation of who and whose we are. But, I have to say it, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're irreligious, maybe you're uber religious maybe you're just indifferent i want you to know that the truth of this passage is resoundingly with a repeating refrain that judgment is coming the book of revelation says we will stand before him he whose eyes are like blazing fire and if all you can say to him is here's my whole life my works my good my bad and i had good intentions that will be a very bad eternity indeed. So I invite you to believe the gospel, that even for you, the irreligious, perhaps the religious, that the gospel is for you, that you will stop all the grasping, all the chasing, all the trying to get for yourself any kind of joy and fulfillment so that you will be content and realized that you will let that go because it will never work. It will only ever succeed in making larger the vacuum of your soul. That you'll believe the gospel, that what God demands of you, He freely gives to you, the righteousness of the kingdom. And maybe you're here this morning, and the Spirit, as we've been hearing Romans 2, this technical passage, maybe as you've been listening to that, the Spirit of God has written a name tag on you that says, Hello, my name is Murray. Well, welcome, Murray. We're glad you're here, too. The gospel is for you. If you have believed the lie that you are somehow better or more deserving of grace than anybody else, I invite you to believe the gospel because you otherwise are storing up wrath for yourself. Sin is worse than we think, but our Savior is greater than we can imagine. This one who himself became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God will return to judge sin. And our prayer is that the gospel takes hold of every human heart in this room. Let me ask you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for who you are, for what you have done. In Christ, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And we do pray, God, if there's one or more this morning who does not know you, that is irreligious, that is practicing a life of personal pursuit, that you will, because of your word and the movement of your spirit, reveal to them the pointlessness, the purposelessness of that pursuit. You will lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, that they will believe and receive the full righteousness of Jesus. They will transfer their own sin and iniquity and impurity to Jesus' his finished work on the cross. And that as a result of that finished work, they will produce fruit. Father, for the rest of us, perhaps, that are doing our best to preserve some moral high ground, would you lay us low and reveal to us that there is no one less deserving nor more deserving of grace. And we all stare together around the cross. Would you help us to live in this world as if the gospel were true. To love in this world as if the gospel were true. And to look at this world as if the gospel were true. Maybe God, we love you because you first loved us. And we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for being here for Romans 2. We'll, Lord willing, clean up the second half next week. I'm going to ask you to stand for word of benediction. I want you to know my brother Jamin is over here. As always, at the end of every service, he'd love to pray with you if there's something going on in your life that you'd like to have prayer. And now I'm going to give a word of benediction from the book of 1 Peter. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible podcast.